for the root can. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake may be seated. Do you want this? I have to mention before I forget that there is a benevolent offering next Sunday. I forgot to point that out earlier. Um, the deacons just want to have a pool of money because there are needs around us all the time and uh, we won't we don't want to wait for a need before, um, before giving to it. So next week, Sunday, there will be a benevolent offering. For, so please be ready for that. Um, there's one more sermon in the series on Revelation. And then I'll start addressing your questions. If you have questions about, uh, about the Bible or about how God intersects with the world or with your life, um, jot them down on a communication card, light brown card, in the few, few in front of you. And uh, you have until next week to get those to me. So uh, just note of that. But for now, we continue in Revelation. And you better pay attention. I know you always do. Because this is the last time in Revelation that we see evil. After this, even though there are two more chapters, evil makes no reappearance. We've seen thus far in Revelation spiritual apathy, false teaching, sexual immorality, idolatry, the occult, war, famine, disease, death by wild beasts, people slain for their belief in Jesus, earthquakes, hail, fire, water to blood, shipwrecks, the sun darkened, stars falling to earth, demonic activity, torture and torment, mockery of God's people, celebration and gift giving at their death, a dragon who is Satan, two beasts, blasphemy, deceit, false worship, bad reception on your phones, just want to see if you're listening, and evil money system, good for you, bloodshed, scorching heat, unrepentance, painful sores, anti-God system, a whore, desolation, sin, haughtiness, plague, violence, corruption, rebellion, but no more. So if you're into that kind of thing, listen up, because this is the last time you'll hear it. So enjoy. But chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, which we just, oh no, 
1 to 6, has sparked debate more than any other passage in Revelation with the possible exception of the beast and number 666 in chapter 13. These six verses are the only place in the whole Bible where the concept of the millennium is addressed. The period of a thousand years. And yet it has colored people's interpretation, approach to the book of Revelation. And not only that, but the whole place of Israel's relationship to God and his divine plan. So I need to talk about it. A section of the broader church, especially in North America, in the last third of the 20th century, held that Jesus would return to Jerusalem and establish his personal visible reign for a thousand years and then return to heaven. And that belief, when paired with one's view of the rapture, the catching up of Christians into heaven, became a way of separating Christians into various camps. And then there's a great tribulation, a period of hardship and trial that would come on earth. And that's what Revelation has been about. Um, I personally think it's unfortunate that Christians have capitalized the millennium and the rapture and the great tribulation. Uh, many churches and organizations have taken those three things and made them a litmus test of Christian orthodoxy. We believe in Jesus. We believe in his death for our sin. We believe in the pre-mill and pre-trib rapture of the church. All together in a statement of faith. And the fact that many of you don't know what I'm talking about is a signal how unfortunate that was. So now for my thoughts. This is just my thoughts. But I don't believe the church will be taken out of the world en masse to heaven. And there are, I think, solid biblical reasons uh, for that from the scriptures. And I don't have time to talk about it here. But um, if you go to our website, the sermons um, drop down, archives, there's a... a Sermons, archives, miscellaneous. There's a sermon under here called Heaven, and you can listen to that and get uh, all the scriptures why I think there is no rapture, apparently. But regarding the millennium, um, Revelations is filled with symbols, and I don't mean there are a lot of symbols, like it's literally filled with symbols. From the description of the church as uh, a lampstand in chapter 1, lion and lamb in chapter 5, the four horsemen, souls of the martyrs underneath the altar, the sky being rolled up, the scroll that John eats, the dragon, beast number 1 and beast number 2, the woman of chapter 14, the prostitute of chapter 17, everything is, is symbols. In fact, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find anything in Revelation that is not a symbol. So there, too, you have numbers. The frequency of the number seven. Seas, bulls, churches. 144 saints, 144,000 cubits, the thickness of a wall of the New Jerusalem. The number 666, 12,000, 42 months or three and a half years or 1,260 days. And then we have this number, 
a thousand. Is there any good reason to think that is that it is not a symbolic number? I think it is a symbolic number. Um, a thousand in the book of Revelation seems to be the number for completeness or the full number of. For example, the 144,000 saints is the square of 12, number of God's people, right? 12 tribes, 12 apostles, times 1,000, representing the full number of God's people, the people of God in their completeness. So 1,000 years is the full number or the complete number of years. Not in terms of eternity, though it's like we're saying uh, the whole time. Uh, Stephen Wright, a comedian, said that he was going for a walk and his girlfriend asked him, how long will you be? And he said, the whole time. That's funny. From the, exactly. From the beginning to the end, however long that is, the whole time is the millennium. And our passage says that the souls of those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received it marked on their foreheads or on their hand, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, does Christ reign now? Has he reigned since his birth? Has he reigned the whole time? Daniel chapter 7, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never pass away. Gabriel said to Mary, The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. The wise men came looking for the king of the Jews. At his trial, the accusation against him was he claimed to be a king. Philippians 2, he has been exalted to the highest place, and every knee will bow before him, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Colossians 1, God has put all things under his feet. Jesus himself said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. This is not some future end times reality. Jesus is reigning now over all things. And do the martyrs and the saints rule with him? Ephesians 2, God has raised us up with him and sealed us with him in the heavenly places. Past tense, we're here on earth, but in a sense, we have been raised with Christ. We're in Christ as Christ rules over all things. 1 Peter 2 verse 9, you are a royal priesthood. James 2, you will inherit a kingdom. In Revelation 3, verse 21, those who conquer will be granted to sit on Jesus' throne as he sits on his Father's throne. So yes, we reign in Christ. One more thing. The chapter begins with, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, 
in a great change, chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So when did this happen? Um, in Matthew 12, 22 to 32, which I won't take time to read now, but in the context of um, Satan and Jesus casting out demons, Jesus said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, the same word, angel bound Satan, unless he first binds the strong man? And in John 12, verse 31, speaking of the very week of his death, Jesus said this, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And in the original language, words for cast out and bound are have the same root. It's like, who, who is familiar with Super Mario? Remember the chain shop? This, this evil head with all kinds of sharp teeth, but he's bound, and he can only go as far as his chain goes. Satan is bound. He can only go as far his, uh, as his leash goes. And people of all nations, like he's, he's bound so that he cannot deceive all the nations anymore. And people of all nations, once clothed, once deceived, are open to the gospel and can be saved. So I'm convinced that what is described in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, Satan bound and God's people reigning with Christ for the whole time began with Jesus' life and death and continues for as many years as God gives until he wraps things up. And it should be noticed that in this passage, which alone speaks of a millennium, there's no explicit mention of Jesus' return no mention of Israel or Jerusalem. So that's what I think the Bible has to say on the doctrine of the millennium. Now, verses 7 and following. At the end of time, Satan will be released from his chain, the chain chomp unleashed. He once again deceived the nations and gathered them for battle. Now, the beast... Number one, the beast number two, the false prophet, are not around for this. They have been dealt with at the end of chapter 19. So this is Satan himself leading the charge. He deceives the nations. That's what he does. He deceives. And the nations are what Revelation calls Gog and Magog. Ezekiel 38 and 39 speak of Gog from the land of Magog coming from the north and being destroyed. Coming from the north against God's people and being destroyed. And in Jewish apocalyptic literature and revelation, the apocalypse is, falls into this tradition. Gog and Magog were personifications of the leaders of the forces of evil. 
So in Revelation, then, the devil musters the forces of evil for one last-dish effort against the Lamb. He's off his leash, no holes barred, all or nothing. Well, it turns out to be nothing. Just like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah, fire falls from heaven and consumes the army. The devil is thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet, beast number one and two, have been thrown at the end of chapter 19. And that's the last of him. After all his activity throughout history, from the Garden of Eden forward, is brought to an end. And that of his demons is brought to an end. No more temptation from the outside. And no more temptation from within. From within our own hearts. Because then comes our passage for today. And I want to read it again. Then I saw a great white throne... In him who was seated on it, from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. John has already spoken of the first resurrection, but he does not mention the second one. And now he speaks of the second death, but he has not yet mentioned the first death. Um, the Apostle Paul talks about how the dead in Christ will rise first. Who's going to rise first? This is a joke. The Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the United Church, or the Baptists? The Baptists were rise first because of dead in Christ. Well, I, I know, I know. Never mind. The souls of those who have died in Christ will ascend and be with Christ in the heavenly places. So this is a first resurrection. is already happening. When we say goodbye to a, a Christian, they're they're with Christ in heaven, the first resurrection. Then will come the second resurrection, the resurrection of the body. And those who are yet alive will be a part of that. All the bodies that have ever lived will be raised up, and we will stand before the throne of God and will face the judgment. One by one, every person, living or dead, will step forward before the throne of God and books will be open, and the book of life. Now, what are these books? They're ledgers 
I think these books are the record of our lives. Every action, every deed, every word, and every thought is recorded. Nobody gets away with anything, large or small. The person who gets away with murder, literally or figuratively, doesn't. Everything done to you or by you will be judged by God. In Matthew 12, Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. Have you ever spoken a careless word? Romans 4, each of us will give an account of himself to God. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our whole lives laid bare. The good deed that we did anonymously is not a secret to God and will no longer be a secret to anyone else, but nor is the sin that you committed when no one was looking. Even the sins in your thoughts. God knows, and I think everyone will know at some point. And our judgment will be based on these things. Judge according to what they had done, the Bible tells us. Jesus said something similar. In his parable of the last judgment, the sheep and the goats, he said, paraphrase, but the king will say to the sheep, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. Um, I was an associate pastor in a church 20 odd years ago. And I was visiting an, uh, an elderly lady and she quoted this to me and said, you know, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you drank me. So. The king said, I was naked, in prison, or sick, and you cared for me. The sheep will reply, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or in need and care for you? And the king will reply, when you did it for the least of these, my brothers, you did it for me. Enter in the joy of your master. But to the goats, he will say, I was hungry, and you did not feed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, in prison, or sick, and you did not care for me. The goats will say, we don't remember that. When did this happen? And the king will reply, when you didn't do it for the least of these, my brothers, my brothers, you didn't do it for me. So depart from me into the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So it sounds like our judgment, our final judgment, is based upon what we did or didn't do. Wait, 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 wait. Ken, what about justification by faith alone? Doesn't the Bible teach that? In fact, isn't that what you teach? You say we don't bring anything to the table. Salvation is entirely a work of God. So what is it? Does God do it? Or are we judged according to what we have done? 
But here's the difference between the sheep and the goats, who the Bible calls righteous and unrighteous. On the deficit side of the ledgers are the deeds of our lives. And the unrighteous will be consigned to the lake of fire based on what they have done to pay eternally for the infinite debt of our sin. Okay, the lake of fire is the second death. The first death, of course, is actual death on this side of eternity. I'm going to read some names to you. And you've got to, ten names, and you've got to tell me what they have in common. You haven't heard of any of these people, by the way. Jean Calmont, Sarah Knaus, Lucy Hanna, Mary, Le uh, Mary Louise Melure, Misao Okako, Okawa, Maria Capovilla, Gertrude Weaver, Tana Ike, Elizabeth Golden, and Bessie Cooper. What do all those people have in common? Any guesses? Well, they're all women, for starters. They are the people, they have lived the longest, historically, of all people. Gertrude Weaver, number seven on the list, died of, on April 5th of this year. Only three people on the planet have been before 1900. And nobody before uh, May 23rd, 1899. Of all the people born before May 23rd, 1899, none is alive today. And many of those born after that, my father and his father and his father before that, have all died. Everyone who was born 116 years ago, millions and billions of people have all died. Hebrews 9, verse 27 says, It is appointed once for man to die, and after that to face the judgment. The mortality rate for all of humanity hovers somewhere around 100%. That's the first death. This lake of fire is the second death, eternal death, into which the unrighteous go. But for the righteous, the sheep, in the definite deficit column, there's nothing written. It's blank. Why? Because we are in Christ. Christ alone has never sinned. And when our books are open, God doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. And he's got nothing written on the deficit side. And you know and I know that we are not righteous. There's no holier than thou or shouldn't be in the church. But God reckons us. He deal with, deals with us. He treats us as if we are righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And on that basis, then, are our names written in the book of life. It is entirely a work of God. What about the positive side of the ledger? Is it also blank? Because they both can't be blanked. If the 
deficit side is blank, if we truly have been counted as righteous in Christ, then there are things written on the positive side. We call those things deeds. The Bible says faith without deeds is dead. Faith, the negative side, all our sins dealt with, erased, without things written on the positive side, deeds is dead. If there are no deeds, then there is ample proof that there is no faith. We call them deeds. We also call them fruit. Jesus said, if you remain in me, vine, you will bear much fruit. Not that you have the potential to bear fruit. Not that you might bear fruit. Not you will bear fruit whether you tax to the vine or not. But if you're attached to the vine that is Jesus Christ, you will bear fruit. And fruit is merely the outward evidence of the inward change. How do, how do I know it's an apple tree? I see apples. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It's also things like integrity, hatred of evil, love of what is good, servanthood, courage, and the like. These are fruit. These are deeds. And no, we don't do all these things perfectly. We are a work in progress. But if there is no evidence of these... We have no faith. The Bible is pretty clear on that. If the positive slide, side of the ledger is blank, then the negative side is full. If the positive side is full, then the negative side is empty. But they both can be blank, and they're both not full. If your name is written in the book of life, then there are deeds. There are fruit. And I need to be absolutely clear on this. Your name is not written in the book of life because of your deeds. Because of your fruit. Salvation is entirely a work of God. But if your name is written in the land's book of life, then there will be deeds. There will be fruit. So yes, you will be judged according to what is in the books. And so I got to ask you, what is written in your books? Do you hunger for Jesus? Do you know your need for him to deal with your sin? Do you know that based on his righteousness, not your own unrighteousness, that you stand holy before God, then you're okay. That is the least of what is written on the positive side. But here's the mystery of our faith. It's all a work of God, but we are responsible for our own Deeds and fruit on the positive side. We're cultivating the fruit of the Spirit. Is gentleness being worked on in your life? 
Do you seek to be faithful? Is gentleness being worked on? I've been on the receiving end of love from many of you. That's a fruit of the Spirit. Do you hate evil? Does the evil going on around us in the world, does it grate on us? Do you love what is good? Are kind? Are you patient? Are you courageous? Do you have integrity? All of these things, many of us in infancy, but growing, cultivating, being cultivated, do you see hints of these things in your life and are they growing and growing and growing? I, I know it's not kosher or appropriate to say that I sin less than I did 20 years ago because we sin all the time. But, but we don't sin all the time, do we? We sin less now than we did a year ago, five years ago, 50 years ago. God is working on our character. Now, do we still sin? Of course. But sin is being dealt with one at a time, and our character grows. Do you see growth in your character? Because if you do, your name is written in the book of life. And we have God to thank for that. If you don't, if you need to see no growth, then God asks you, do you have faith? Do you? At the end of Revelation 20, evil comes to an end. And maybe you come to an end. If you're not sure, if you're not sure, then come to see me after the service. But you need to, in your own heart, talking with someone you love, what, however and whatever you do, you need to get right with Jesus. You need to acknowledge that it's his righteousness not your righteousness or your unrighteousness by which you stand before God. If you cannot say that with any confidence, you need to today. If you don't come to an end at the end of chapter 20, then you get to engage in chapter 21 and 22. And that's your future laid out the book of Hebrews calls, calls the throne of judgment, the throne of God, the throne of grace. And he's got grace. He will welcome you. And many of us have known that grace. In Revelation, we have seen spiritual apathy, false teaching, sexual immorality, idolatry, etc., in Revelation 21 and 22, we read, we see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, integrity, love of what is good, courage. These things continue. 
will you continue? I will. I will. And I hope that you do as well. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. We thank you that Jesus died for us. Thank you that he rose again for our justification. Thank you for his righteousness imputed to us that even though we sin, you see us as righteous because Jesus is righteous. We thank you for that. We couldn't do anything about that ourselves. Salvation is entirely a work of you in our lives. But we pray for grace and we choose this morning to cultivate the, the fruit, the deeds. We resolve to be more loving and more gentle and more faithful. On one hand, we pray, God help us. And yet on the other hand, we pray that we will just do it. We commit ourselves to your character. Form it in us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen.